me to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, the most popular minor prophet, the only one that most people can think of, but there's a good reason for that. Jonah is a really uh, unusual work of literature. And uh, Pastor Nate asked me to prepare a, uh, a short series as I pre- preach now and again over the course of the next several months. Uh, so it's my hope that we can return to this book a number of times uh, in the months ahead and see something of uh, God's purposes for us in giving it to us. Let's go ahead and read. This is a very familiar book. I would guess that probably almost everyone here, even if you don't normally go to church, uh, if you are not a Christian, uh, you're probably at least sort of familiar with Jonah. It's a a world-famous slice of literature. And... uh, so we're going to kind of proceed on that understanding today. Um, it's a very short book. It covers all of two, two pages, technically just two pages uh, in my Bible, perhaps a little bit more in yours. But we won't read the whole thing today because it's so familiar. Um, instead, we'll just read the first part of uh, chapter one. We'll do that in just a moment. I'm just going to draw your attention to something that we're going to refer to again and again, and that is the way that Jonah is laid out. Because you know the story, Jonah is the story of this prophet who's sent to go somewhere and tell people something for God, and instead of doing that, he bails out and goes in the other direction, and uh, that ends in disaster with him uh, being thrown off of a boat and rescued by God sending a big fish to take him out of the ocean, back to the land, where he then sets off to do the job he was given to do at the beginning. And honestly, if again, if you're not normally a churchgoer, you don't read this, the Bible very often, that may be as much as you can remember. Even if you are normally a churchgoer, that still may be as much as you can remember. Uh, but he goes to do what he was sent to do, and he goes to give the message that he was sent to give. And then we have a little kind of a coda, kind of, and what happened next? So Jonah breaks very cleanly into two parallel parts. The story of Jonah has two, basically part one, part two, and they're the same. Jonah gets a message from God. He goes to do that thing, uh, or not, as we'll see. Uh, He encounters some people along the way who are not God's people at all, and then his reaction to that encounter. So we're just going to read the first part of the first section today. Let's read the first six verses of Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, or get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, "'What do you mean, you sleeper?' Get up, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
that's as much for us today. And in fact, we won't take all that time uh, or all that space in our consideration today. What I want us to do today is reflect on this question. Jonah, the prophet who runs from God. Uh, which is a question by itself because it's like right there in the kind of job description. Like if you ask what's a prophet, a prophet is the guy that works for God, the guy that gives messages for God, not a guy who runs away from God. That's kind of a contradiction in terms. So how does it come about that Jonah uh, is completely bailing out on God? And I want us to just look at what the text has uh, today, and particularly what it has for us. I'm going to do something that I wouldn't normally do, and that is I'm going to kind of spend a while trying to set the stage for you. Because when we read this first, just this, the first few verses, God says to Jonah, the son of Amittai, get up, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. But Jonah goes to Tarshish and gets, uh, or he goes to Joppa and gets on a ship going to Tarshish. I would guess that most of those words are basically meaningless for us. We don't know who these people are. We don't know where these places are. God tells a guy to do a thing, and the guy says, I'm not going to do the thing. That's what we get. But I think we're going to get a lot more out of this book. In fact, I think it's going to be important for us to get at the central messages of this book if we understand what the first people who read this or the first people who were taught this would have understood by those names and those places. Because for them, it wasn't a question of familiar-sounding guy goes to familiar-sounding place. The names of people and of places have powerful emotional and moral significance for us. When I say a place name like Auschwitz, it means something. We feel that impact in our souls. And that's the way that it was for Jonah. So <clears throat> let's just start. It says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who's Jonah and what is he doing here? Because this text doesn't explain it. We know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was, and the only thing Jonah tells us about himself later when he talks to these, these uh, sailors is he says, I'm a Hebrew, right? So we know Jonah's a Jewish guy, and we know about Jonah from 2 Kings chapter 14. He's mentioned, we won't turn there, um, but you can note that down, 2 Kings 14.25 mentions Jonah by name. He was from a little place called gath Hafer. And we're pretty sure, although archaeology is always a little touchy, uh, that we know exactly where it is. It's about five kilometers from Nazareth. So you know Nazareth, right? If you're familiar with the Bible, you remember that that is the place where Jesus grew up. There on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a little lake uh, in Israel, still there today. Jonah was from a very similar place, from just just a stone's throw away from what would later become Nazareth, up on the northern edge of Israel. And at the time that Jonah was working, because it says here that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that means that he was a prophet. Because that phrase, the word of the Lord came to someone, is used again and again and again throughout your Old Testament to describe the work of prophets. Here's a person 
whose job it is to speak to people on behalf of God. Right? So Jonah, this was his calling. He had this function in Israel. And during the time that he was working, this ancient nation, Israel, was divided into two parts. You might remember that the very first king of Israel was Saul, and then the greatest of all the Israelite kings was David, the guy who came after Saul. And the wealthiest and most powerful of all the Israelite kings was his son Solomon. But after Solomon, things really didn't go super well. And the kingdom split in half under his son Rehoboam, and it was divided into the northern bit of God's covenant people, which went by the name of Israel, and the southern bit, which went by the name of Judah. All this you might recall. Well, Jonah was a prophet in the north, in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, from its very inception, was marked by trouble, by problems, especially by spiritual problems. Because very early on, in order to try to shore up his political power, the, the very first king of the north of Israel set about to uh, build up an alternative worship framework so that when people went to do their religious rituals they didn't have to go down south that was shady that might cause a problem for them they could stay in the north and everyone would be staying at home and nobody would be thinking about going back to the king down there seemed like a great plan real kind of a get out the vote move uh, but it was a total disaster for israel and it continued to pay dividends of disaster generation after generation. So Jonah comes in a couple hundred years after the beginning of the northern kingdom, and he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was the most successful of all the northern kings. He was king for a really long time. And during his reign, the northern kingdom of Israel was at the peak of its power and of its wealth. In fact, uh, the scriptures say that in 2 Kings 14, that God saved Israel by the hand of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam was a well-loved king, a great king, who had a huge, huge impact. And Jonah who lived up there in Israel, and who was God's representative in Israel, had a big role in that. The only other reference to Jonah that occurs in the scripture outside of this book I mentioned is in 2 Kings 14.25. In that reference, it says that Jonah was the one who prophesied one of the major military victories of Jeroboam II. God gave Jonah a message to tell the king, hey, you're going to go out there, you're going to fight a big war against the nation of Aram, which is to the north. They've been oppressing you, they've been causing all kinds of problems for you, and you are going to totally win, you're going to totally beat them up, and you're going to push the border of Israel all the way back, almost to where it was under Solomon. It's going to be amazing, it's going to be glorious, everyone's going to be super happy, this is the message that God gave to 
Jonah. And Jonah prophesied that message. And then God did that thing. And there was a huge campaign and everyone was super pumped. It was awesome. Jonah was a prophet of Israelite victory. Now, not everything was perfect in Israel during this time. Uh, I mentioned already that there were spiritual cracks in the foundation. And God sent other prophets around this time, people whose names you might uh, recognize, like Amos and Micah. And we're not going to read the books of Amos or Micah. Uh, That's not going to be really a part of our study here. But if you have read Amos and Micah, then you probably remember at least that they are not positive books. That these are books sharply criticizing the kingdom and the practices of Israel. So God sends these guys, Micah and and, uh, Amos, with these kind of like dark, uh, unpleasant prophecies calling Israel to repent of its sins. But Jonah gets to go and do the cool stuff and tell everybody we're going to win, it's going to be amazing, and then they win, and that's amazing. That's Jonah's life. So when people heard the name of Jonah, it would have meant something to them. It would have meant this this great guy who is, he is God's messenger telling us, hey, Israel, maybe things were bad, right? Maybe there's some problems with idolatry. That's a thing. But Jonah says, God is going to bless you. He is going to rescue you. He is going to empower you. You are going to be rich and you're going to be powerful. And then they watched it happen. And this is, this is the, the mission, the life's work that Jonah had. Until this. Because here, God says, get up. This is, this is kind of like what happens... Some of you have been in this work environment where you're just waiting for something to happen. Everyone's sitting around in the break room or everyone's sitting by the side of the road or whatever and you're just chilling and you're laughing and somebody comes in and says, let's go. That's God. Let's go, Jonah. Time to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh is a name that lands weightless on our ears. We don't know what Nineveh is. Sounds like something kind of Star Trek-y maybe, I don't know. But this is a name that would have had great resonance, terrible resonance with everyone who heard this. Nineveh was a city. It's gone today. Today it's just a ruin on the banks of the Tigris River, and maybe you don't even know where the Tigris River is, because that's not our lives. But it's in Iraq. It's just across the river from Mosul. And some of you might remember Mosul uh, from the war that was fought there within our lifetime, some of us. Well, uh, it's not much to look at now. It's an archaeological site. But at the time of Jonah's life and work, And within the lifetimes of everyone who would have heard this story for the first time and for generations afterwards, 
Nineveh was a tremendously famous and powerful city. At this time, it was almost certainly the greatest city in the world in terms of uh, political power and cultural power. It was the capital of Assyria. Assyria is a nation that ran for a long time, had a lot of reruns. Uh, But this season of Assyria is what historians call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and they were Assyria at their best. This was Assyria, greatest hits, top ten. They were, at this time, many historians consider them to be the first true world empire. They were mind-bogglingly large and powerful. And although, on a map today, you look at it and you think, meh, At the time, people could not imagine anything truly threatening Assyria. The Assyrians were immensely powerful, and they knew it. And they were happy to throw their weight around and make sure that everyone sent them presents, whether it was their birthday or not. They extracted tribute from kings and kingdoms all around the Middle East, and beyond. And the way that they got so powerful was a combination of boring infrastructure and terrifying cruelty. The Assyrians were notable during a time that was marked in many ways by cruelty for their cruelty. They were Uh, in the habit after their victories of making monuments to their victory. A lot of people did that. The Assyrian kings made monuments of themselves, chopping off uh, a, uh, a leg and an arm from each captive, for example. They made monuments of themselves building walls of skulls in front of the cities that they had raised as a reminder to everyone about what happened if you didn't send them what they wanted. In fact, the Assyrians were so cruel and so horrifying in their cruelty that I did not really feel like it would be appropriate to read most of the things that they're well known for. But I want you to cast in your mind back to what human evil looks like. I want you to just think about your own experience. What is the worst thing that you have ever read about or that you have ever watched one group of human beings do to another. Earlier I I mentioned Auschwitz and maybe you think about something like that or the pogroms that were carried out under the Nazis. Maybe you think about the terror campaigns that were conducted under Stalin. Maybe you think about the genocidal war that took place between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Or maybe you think, if you're from Asia particularly, you might think about the Japanese occupation of many of the places that it occupied, but particularly the notorious rape of Nanking. Today, the city of Nanjing, which has as one of its most prominent tourist attractions, a shrine and a museum to the unbelievable brutality of the occupiers. Things that still to this day boggle the imagination. Assyria sp- 
specialized in that. For Assyria, these kinds of things were not a one-off, something terrible that happened under a charismatic and wicked leader that led them out of their way. This was their culture. They honed it. They practiced it. They perfected it. They sharpened those practices under emperor after emperor after emperor. They knew what they were, and they gloried in it. Assyria was an ancient terror state. And with the benefit of hindsight, most of the people in history who have ever read this book, this book of Jonah, would have known, as perhaps you yourself know, that Assyria came down with a massive army and completely annihilated the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., just about a generation or two after this was written. They were feared and rightly feared. And so God says, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That means something when you know who Jonah is and what Nineveh is. And so all that's left for us to note in terms of setting up this story is who God is. Because God is the third character. The word of the Lord, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, came to Jonah and he said, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Who is Yahweh? Of course, we know him very well because the entire Bible is the word of Yahweh, our God. And all the songs, songs that we've sing, that we have sung today are about the great work that Yahweh did in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, and his rescue of humankind. But for Jonah and for his audience, Yahweh was most of all the God of Israel. Let's just jump ahead for one second. When they, uh, the, these sailors finally get uh, Jonah awake and they pull him up and they're like, we know who everybody else is. Who are you? He says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew. That's his political identification. And I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So, yes, Yahweh is the God of Israel and the covenant people of Israel. But in saying that, and you notice that the sailors are really unhappy to hear that. In saying that, Jonah was saying something really unusual. Because everybody would have identified themselves. Hey, I'm from Phoenicia. And, you know, I serve this God. And, oh, I'm, I'm from Egypt. And, uh, yeah, sure, I serve Ra and Seth. And I'm, over, I'm from Assyria. And, and I, I serve these gods of the Assyrians. For all these other people, including the sailors, their, their political identification and their religious identification were just one and the same, Right? You're from over here? You're from Beaumont? Yeah, you get Beaumont gods, right? That's what everybody gets. Every place has its gods. You're from the place. 
Those are the gods you get, right? So does anyone, the sailors are asking at this moment, does anyone happen to have some kind of ocean god that they've caused a problem for? And so when Jonah says, oh, my God made everything, that's not good news for them. But it makes the story make sense. Because Yahweh speaks to Jonah, his representative for the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and he says, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Assyria and give them a message. Why? Because everything belongs to God. All places and all people belong to Yahweh. If he has a message for the Assyrians, it's not him kind of horning in on someone else's territory. Those people are his people. That city is his city. This ocean is his ocean. This Israel is his Israel. And if you get all the way over to Tarshish, that's his too. That's all his. God is the divine ruler. It's true that Israel and Samaria are his nation and his city, but just as much are Assyria and Nineveh. And God is angry at the evil of the Assyrians. And he's chosen a messenger to deliver that message. This is a message that many prophets delivered to many places. And... uh, It's his prerogative to pick whichever prophet he wants. So he picks Jonah. God gives Jonah a mission. Now we know what we need to know for the story of Jonah to really make sense to us. We need to know who Jonah is. We need to know what Nineveh is. And we need to know why God acts the way that he does and why people react to him the way that they do. Now we're ready to get as far as we're going to get today, and that is to see Jonah totally bail out. Because God says, get up, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, And he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. In order to get to Nineveh, from wherever he was, we know he was somewhere in Israel, maybe he's in Samaria, the capital city, maybe he was in his hometown, Gathafer, wherever he was, Israel is frankly not a very big place even today, and at that time it was much smaller. To get to Nineveh, he should have geared up for weeks of trekking northeast. He was going to get his shoes on, very important first step, and he was going to walk north past the Sea of Galilee, along that long river valley, out of Israel. He was going to travel through Damascus. He was going to travel through Aram. He was going to break out of Aram, cross the Euphrates River, and then hike all the way through like most of Assyria until he got to Nineveh. It's a very long walk. If you were going to try to replicate it for research purposes, then tomorrow morning you would get up and put your shoes on and walk to Spokane, Washington. It would be like that, but way hotter and more unpleasant. Um, And along the way, lots of people might try to kill you. 
which is less likely if you walk to Spokane. <laughs> because he would have been walking through non-Israelite non, non, uh, territory uh, where there were plenty of people who might have felt hostile toward him, especially when they found out what his job was and where he was going. That's what Jonah should have done. Big, long, overland walk. But that's not what he did. Instead, he gets up and he goes the opposite direction until he gets to the port city of Joppa. If he was in the capital of Samaria, this would have been a day's journey, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. He walks into Joppa. Joppa is not an Israelite city. It's a city uh, built and controlled by the Phoenicians who were the masters of trade in the ancient world. Their ships sailed all over the Mediterranean Sea. And so he walks in and he looks for a boat that is going literally as far as they go, which would have been all the way from one end of the Mediterranean Sea where he was in Israel to the other end, to the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea and beyond that, the Atlantic Ocean where Phoenicians did not go. Tarshish was most likely a site in the west of what is today Spain. And so, yeah, that's all the way. That's as far as you can get. You can't get any farther. In order to get farther, you have to invent methods of navigation that wouldn't be invented for, like, millennia. So Jonah goes down and just says, who is going the farthest away? These guys are. So he pays and he gets on their boat, headed 5,000 kilometers away from his destination. What is Jonah doing? I want us to start by looking at what he says here. It says, he went to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. And it actually repeats that. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the ferry, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, just to be really clear where he's going. It's not an accident, not on the way, not Nineveh by way of Tarshish. He is going away from the presence of Yahweh. Is he trying to escape? <clears throat> well, not really. And I want us to look at two passages that are going to clarify that for us. The first one is one that is well known, one that would have been known to Jonah because of the time of its composition. This is part of a psalm. <coughs> a psalm, uh, this part of the psalm you may well be familiar with. From the 139th psalm, written by David many, many years before. In Psalm 139, David writes in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, that phrase is exactly what we read here in Jonah, right? He is going to flee away from the presence of Yahweh. David says, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost, the farthest parts of the sea, like for example... I don't know, like Tarshish or something even. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me 
and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah knew that psalm. He would have known it, of course. Every, every Israelite would have been familiar with these psalms of David. And in fact, when the sailors wake him up and they drag him up on deck and they say, uh, what are you doing and what's going on with you? He tells them like, very blandly, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah doesn't think he can get away. <laughs> He's not trying to escape from Yahweh in any meaningful sense. What he is trying to do here is not really hiding. He is quitting. This is a little bit like what happens in the very first few pages of our Bible when we read about Adam and Eve rebelling against God and God comes to meet them and they are hiding. Why are they hiding? They can't hide from God. Yeah, they know that. They know they can't hide from God. They just don't want to look at him. They just can't face him. And all of us have had this experience of being called to account for something or having to go talk to someone and the experience is so terrible we wish we could just literally be anywhere else but we can't and so about the most that we can muster up is that at least I am not going to look. I'm just going to look down like this. I can't bear to look that person in the face. This is a little bit the impulse of what's behind what Jonah is doing. Jonah's going to explain in detail what he's doing in the, the end of the book, and we'll get to that later. But for today, it's enough for us to notice that what Jonah is doing is removing himself from this situation. And Jonah may well reason, listen, Yahweh does what he wants to do, right? He's in charge. He calls the shots. Uh, if someone's got to do this, if someone's got to go give this message to Assyria, well, I don't have to be there when it happens. Right? Seems to be the extent of his intention. And for now, like I said, it's enough for us to note that he understand what God, he understands what God wants very, very well. And Jonah cannot think of a single reason to do that. God wants me to go to Assyria, give these people a message. Yeah, no, that's a terrible idea. There is literally no reason for me to do that, God. So I'm leaving. Jonah is in a very difficult position. It's a little bit like a Jewish rabbi being sent to denounce the evils of Germany in 1941 on the streets of Berlin. It's a little bit like a Ukrainian pastor standing in Red Square with a loudspeaker calling out God's anger on the evil Russians and the evil Putin administration on the eve of the current invasion. It doesn't immediately strike Jonah as a brilliant plan. And so we can imagine the kind of things that Jonah was thinking. We don't know, right? This is 
little bit speculative, but there are a lot of things that someone in his position might think. He might have thought, listen, God doesn't prophesy to pagan nations. Right? We got all these, all these prophets, tons of prophets. Who are they talking to? They're talking to God's people. They're not talking to non-Jewish people. Dude, God's our God. He talks to us. And if, yes, okay, a few times God does prophesy to pagan nations, but when he does that, he doesn't send the prophet to that place to do that. That's not a thing. True. He might have thought, look, those people are bloodthirsty murderers. They are torturers. They are rapists. I mean, you know, (laughs) what? God sent me, Jonah, he sent me to Israel with this message of prosperity and political power. And now he wants me to turn around and give this message of hope to Assyria. That's like the exact opposite. What are you saying? What are you saying, God? Are you saying that the thing that I said before is not what, I mean, what's happening? This doesn't make any sense. And anyway, he might have thought, what are they going to do? Are they going to listen to me? I'm just going to show up. Hello, uh, Nineveh, God's mad at you. And then they're just going to chuck their bows in the river and we'll all sing Kumbaya. That's a great plan, God. Genius. Thank you. You know, what, they're just going to, they're going to laugh and then they're just going to kill me. And that'll be it. He might have thought, even if I survive, wait, what's going to happen when I get back? They're going to say, hey, Jonah, where'd you go? And I'll say, oh, I just went to uh, Assyria, you know, to give them a message from our God, Yahweh. And, uh, and then if the Assyrians don't kill me, then everyone in Samaria for sure will, right? Because they'll say, wow, we didn't realize you were a traitor and insane. Yeah, I mean... God made all these promises to Israel. Now, what is he going to just chuck them in the bin? Start handing out favors to everyone? None of this works, God. So, somebody else can do your crazy plan. I'm gone. Those are a lot of reasons. And, you know, all of them have some element of truth behind them. But despite all of that, Jonah's wrong. God gave him something to do. And in fact, there are good reasons for Jonah to do those things. God's not being inconsistent, despite what Jonah thinks. God's not being cruel. God's not being ridiculous. This book is going to unfold with the plans that God has for Nineveh and the plans that God has for Jonah. So let's just reflect for a moment about how we respond when we don't understand something. How do we respond? when we don't get it, when it doesn't make any sense to us. Perhaps God tells us to do something. And when I say God tells us to do something, I'm not talking about like you have a, you know, a feeling that you should go to Uzbekistan and be a missionary. That's a different kind of thing. 
I'm talking about when God tells you to do something like you should forgive that person who wronged you. Because our Lord Jesus said that we should pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And you think, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. Or perhaps when God tells us that we should give to meet the needs of the poor. The Apostle John says if someone has this world's good and he sees his brother and sister in need and yet he does nothing, how can the love of God remain in him? But you think, <laughs> listen, God, have you seen my budget? Clearly not. That's, not. that's not a thing. Let's move along. Moving along. Or perhaps when God says to us, listen, you need to tell that person about the love of Jesus. Because our Lord said that we should go everywhere and tell all people the good news about Jesus Christ. And here's a person that he's put you next to. This person's your neighbor, they're your coworker, or something. And they clearly need this message, and here's this opportunity. That's not going to work. God, you have any idea what they're going to say when I say that? That's, that's a terrible plan. How, how do we respond when we don't understand? Because the truth is, all of us do this. I, I, I've done this. We look at something that God is telling us to do, and we can't see any good reason for him to tell us to do that thing. So we think there must not be any good reasons. Or maybe we're praying eagerly for God to do some specific good thing in our lives but he doesn't do that good thing. And we can't think of a single reason why he wouldn't. And so we're tempted to think that there must not be any reasons why he wouldn't do it. So often we're tempted like Adam and Eve to mistrust the character of God. Think about what happens. Eve's there in the garden. And a snake comes to her. Says, hey, check out this tree. Eve says, oh, we can't eat from the tree. And the snake says, wow, it will make your life so much better if you do. It's going to be revolutionary. It's going to be fantastic. You are going to love it. How are you feeling right now? Not so good? Think about how great your life is going to be when you eat that fruit. And it says that she looked at the fruit. She saw that it was pleasant to eat. It was good for food. It's going to make her wise. All these things that are good things. And she thinks, maybe I can't actually trust God to do the things that he says he's going to do for me. Like, because right now, at this moment, it's pretty obvious that God's holding out on me. There's this kind of mental calculation that's happening to Jonah right now. The only reason that we can see it is with the benefit of the clarity of God's word from a distance, because we're not Jonah in that situation. We do these kind of things too. And so often we're tempted to mistrust the character of God, to mistrust his goodness, to mistrust his wisdom. But one of the lessons that is going to unfold throughout the entire book of Jonah is that the character of God is genuinely unquestionable. It really doesn't ever change. The thing that God is calling you to do or the thing that God is 
is putting in my life is not a thing that proves that God actually doesn't really love me or that God really is just doesn't quite have it all together for me. God does love us. Even though God's character is unquestionable, Jonah is going to question it anyway, again and again and again. And one of the reasons for this book is to remind us of this dangerous dynamic in our own hearts. So as as we see here, Jonah tromping down the gangplank into this boat headed for the far side of the world, I, I want to encourage each of us, and especially me, to look into our own hearts. Is God doing something in your life right now that just doesn't make sense to you? That's legitimate. God did not give Jonah like a fully detailed plan of what was going to happen and why. But what Jonah did have and what we have is a fully detailed explanation of the character of God. That God does love us. That he does understand us. That he is doing right by us. And that he is not going to abandon his covenant people, even if they check themselves out. Jonah did not believe what God was saying and calling him to do. I mean, he understood it. Like he knew it was probably going to happen. But he was not going to be there for it. He did not believe it for himself. And so it reminds us maybe of a story. The story of Jonah is actually quite similar in some ways to uh, some other stories of people called to do very surprising or difficult things by God. You remember the, the account of Abraham. God says to Abraham, I want you to get up. I want you to go somewhere else. Abraham says, okay, where am I going to go? Do you remember what God says? Tell you later. Yeah, just that direction. And Abraham says, okay, I'm going to go. And then he comes to Abraham and he says, hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And I'm going to do so much good in your life and in the lives of all people through your son. And Abraham says, wow, that's super amazing, especially because I totally can't have a son. And God says, you will. And Abraham says, great, when? God says, later. And then God comes to Abraham at the end of this long chain and he says, Abraham, I want you to do something terrible. I want you to kill your own son. Something that no one has ever been asked to do. Something that goes against everything else that I've told you. But you know it's me telling you this. Abraham, you got to do it. Abraham says, well, oh yeah, all right. I mean, I... I know who's telling me. I know what God's like. I guess I'll do that. He goes up onto the mountain and God steps in and stops him. He says, I, I have demonstrated your faith, Abraham. We compare a person like Jonah with a person like Abraham and we think, wow, look at Abraham. This is amazing. And it is amazing. It's amazing. This kind of faith in the person of God. But the message of Jonah and even the message of this opening little thing where Jonah just rebels against God, the message of this is not just you should be more like Abraham and less like Jonah. Do more stuff that God says and don't do the bad stuff that Jonah does. It's not really that. 
although that's certainly true. Rather, it's that this story of Jonah reminds us that Abraham had really, frankly, a lot of problems of his own. And there's another account of another person who is sent to do something really unbelievable. And that person is Jesus Christ. That God says he is going to send his son into the world not to condemn the world. That's what we would expect. Here's God sending Jesus Christ into the world which is literally full to the brim of God's enemies. I mean, yes, the Assyrians, they're in there. But every wicked and cruel empire throughout the entire history of time is in there too. All those bad guys are in there. And all those self-righteous people, like the people that Jesus actually literally came to, who were like, listen, Jesus, we don't need your help. We've got everything figured out. Get out of our way. Jesus came to all of these people, every one of whom was against God. And he did it to bring us out of that state and back to God. Jesus came into this world to turn Assyrians into people like Abraham and so far beyond. Jesus came to heal the things that we could never heal, to do the things that we could never do, to overcome the sins of every person, whether they're the most awful and rebellious Assyrian, whether they're the most self-righteous and arrogant Jonah, whether they are the most hopeful and impressive Abraham, who still somehow, despite everything, cannot do everything that he wants to do, who still drops the ball again and again. God comes to us in Jesus Christ, and he does not say, no worries, it's not a big deal, forget about it. He says, your evil has come up before me, and I love you. And I am going to heal you and rescue you by subjecting myself to all of the pain and suffering that you deserve. That's the true and greater Jonah. And we're going to see that picture of Jesus Christ come back again and again to us throughout this book. But it's already clear here. Because when Jesus, when God says to Jonah, Jonah, go, Jonah gets up and goes the opposite direction. But when the father says to the son, I'm going to send you into the world, it says uh, in the scriptures, uh, behold, I come to do your will, O Lord. This is the message of Jesus Christ. And the message is that for every place, every time, where the goodness and the love of God toward us is something that we just didn't believe in, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Jesus Christ is there to forgive us and to restore us, and he will do that for everyone who calls on him. Let's pray.